Well, hello. It's good to be back. Some of you may not have noticed, but uh, I appreciate y'all letting me have two weeks off. It was very nice for myself and my family. And I bring you greetings from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Waco, Texas, who we were privileged to worship with them just as, as uh, congregants there, as visitors. But it's always good when brothers and sisters in Christ can come together. And so I send you greetings from them. So here we are at the camp meeting again. It's that time when some of you leave your nice comfortable beds to come here. It's the time when uh, we're out here in the wind instead of in the sanctuary. And, and we do this because we want to look back over the, you know, the history of such meetings that took place in the south over the last couple hundred years. And we also do this to remind ourselves that we are pilgrims in this life, that this world is not our home, and that kind of having a place like in a field field like this is a really good metaphor for the Christian life. But today, we're also going to see through Psalm 132 that one of the reasons we do this is because God sort of camped out for a little while as well. Just to kind of give you a brief Old Testament survey history here, if you remember, there's this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, right? You know, if you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, it was that thing that kind of exploded at the end and all weird stuff happened. Okay. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but that's the Ark of the Covenant. And so the Ark of the Covenant was kind of like, imagine God sitting on a throne, and imagine what he puts his feet on. That's what he calls the Ark throughout the Old Testament, his footstool. You'll see in the Old Testament in some of the Psalms, they'll say, we want to come and worship at your footstool. They actually mean the Ark of the Covenant. So it's not that God lived there. They knew that. But they knew that the Ark of the Covenant was where God decided his physical presence would be with his people. He was the mediator. A, a pre, and we know it's a precursor to Christ who was our mediator. So this Ark of the Covenant was with God's people. It was in a tent while they wandered out to the desert. When they got to Israel, it was still in a tent. It was at one location. And God promised that when he commanded them to go to battle, when he commanded, this battle is for me, and you take my presence and you will win, the Ark was a, a good luck charm in their mind. For winning battle, which was not what God said. God said, when I tell you to fight, you can take this ark. If you go and you drag my ark with me, I'm not going to guarantee to fight for you. Well, they brought the ark to a battle, lost the battle, lost the ark. The ark was in another country for a little while. God did bad things to that country, so they sent it back. And the ark kept going around to different places for a time. And when David finally establishes Jerusalem as his capital city, he then says, they remembered the ark. They actually forgot about the Ark of the Covenant. You think about that. They actually forgot the Ark of the Covenant even existed. So David is reminded of the Ark of the Covenant. So he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant home. And so he goes and he finds it. And he tries to bring it home. He does it the wrong way. And some people die. And then he goes back and looks at the instructions and brings it back the right way. And they had this great party and they rejoice. It's a wonderful time. And this psalm, Psalm 132, is written to commemorate and remember that event of David bringing that ark to Jerusalem, of giving God, so to speak, a permanent home in Jerusalem. So if you would, it's printed for your bulletin, would you look with me at Psalm 132. It's a long one, we're not going to go over everything, by the way. So, <clears throat> this is God's Word. A song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. A dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. 
We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You in the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him his crown will shine. Now, would you pray with me? Father God, as we come before your word today, we ask you would open this text up to us. Oh Lord, give us truth for our growth, for our joy, that we might see Christ, that we might be more obedient to your gospel, that we might know your gospel better and thus know you better. Oh Lord, be with us, teach us, heal us with your word today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I could sum this psalm up in one sentence and give you a sentence here to use to kind of think about where we're going today. I'm going to take this off. It's going to be light. I'll give you a sentence here to use today. It's going to be this. It's, be, it's worth it because God wants to be with us and bless us. It's worth it because God wants to be with us and bless us. So let's jump into that. First thing we see is God's presence is worth the hardship. The psalm begins with the people looking back to the good old days. Before there was a temple, when David finally got the ark to Jerusalem. And they remember that David endured hardships to make that happen. He struggles to give God a permanent place in, and a permanent presence in Israel among his people. We see that David will not be comfortable until God is established as he should be with his people. Until Israel itself is established as well. No longer a wandering people, but officially once God had a resting place. They, too, were a settled nation, no longer wandering. The ark's resting in Jerusalem means their home. And David wants that so much for his people. He's not going to sleep, the psalm tells us. He's not going to eat. He's always going to be thinking about this in the back of his head. No matter what he's doing, he's going to be thinking about the ark. He wants this. You know, most people, us included... We're, uh, we're very careful, aren't we? Not to be too religious. We don't want to be seen as zealous. We don't want to be seen as, you know, those people, right? Let's not get too carried away with that. But here we see David putting God's honor, putting the good of God's people above everything else. He, before he thinks about feeding his belly, before he, he thinks about laying down when he's tired, before he thinks about getting himself dressed, he is concerned about what have I done today to glorify God and to bless the people of God. And David does that because he loves God and because he loves God's people. What is it that we are willing to endure hardships for? What is it 
that preoccupies our thoughts? What is it that comes before our basic needs? It's a very simple answer, actually, isn't it? It's the things we love. We do this automatically. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to say, okay, I love this, therefore I must, I must endure. No, we love it and we gladly, without even thinking about it, give our heart over and we will suffer hardship for this because we love it. When you think about what you would be willing to give up for your family, think about what price you would pay to save the life of your child. It's automatic, isn't it? That kind of sacrificial spirit. That's the kind of hardship verse 1 speaks about. David was willing to be humiliated, afflicted, stricken. We could translate that word hardship as all of those things. For God's glory and for God's people. Oh dear flock, as our culture becomes more and more post-Christian, we're going to have to ask ourselves, do we love God and His people enough to be humiliated and stricken. Do we love God enough to do that? Do we love our church enough to do that? That's a good question. We should ask ourselves those questions routinely, but that's not exactly what David is commended for here, and I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you this. David is not remembered here for being zealous. David is not remembered here for trying really hard. David is remembered because he wanted to see God glorified and to see God's people blessed. They remember that's what motivated David. Do we have that desire? Can we say that's what motivates us? That is our desire. Are we willing to sacrifice to see God glorified? To see his people uplifted and built up? Or maybe it's more personal than that. How many times have you looked at yourself or looked in the mirror and have you said, man, I want a more robust faith. I want more joy out of life. But then, we're not willing to sacrifice a little bit of sleep to get up earlier to spend time in the scriptures in the morning. Or, I want a closer walk with God. I want to know Him better. I want more joy. I want more peace. But then there's something in our life, some other love, some hobby, something, some, the Bible would say, idol. Something we love more. And so we're not willing to sacrifice it for God's glory. Instead, we sacrifice God's glory and the good of God's people for it. See, David was willing to endure hardship for God's glory. He was willing to be humiliated for the good of God's people. Because he wanted to see God's people built up. He wanted to honor God. Oh, you don't have to endure hardship to know God. Let's say that again. You don't have to endure hardship to know God. That is not what this is about. We have access to God's presence. We have access to the blessings of God through Jesus Christ because He suffered hardship. He endured hardship. He was humiliated. He was afflicted. The question is, those of us who have been changed by that message... Do we really think it's worth it? And so we suffer for it. That is the question of this text. When our neighbors or our co-workers look at our lives, do they see that we think Christ is worth hardship? Just this morning I read an article in a medium-sized town about the size of Orangeburg in Idaho. One of those states out west that's weirdly shaped. Freedom-loving state. A 
pastor and his wife who have run a chapel in that town for 30 years. A openly religious chapel that they, from the very beginning, if you would like to get married here, we will marry you, but there's a, this is a Christian order of worship. We do it this way. We don't do it any other way. Because of the interpretation of the Supreme Court's decision, just yesterday, they were slapped with a $1,000 fine and a notice that if they did not change, they would be incarcerated. Yes, incarcerated in America because they refused to do a wedding for a same-sex couple. They said, I'm sorry, you can go right across the street and do it there. We, don't, we can't do that. An ordained Christian pastor. Are we willing to suffer for the faith? But don't miss the grace here. This psalm is a bold, bold prayer. Calling on God to remember His covenant because of what David did for them. They understood God made a covenant with David. They understood that David was their mediator. They understood they could talk to God this way, this boldly because of what David did, not because of themselves. Oh, dear Christian, I hope you see the connection. Because of the work of Christ, we can pray with that same boldness. We can go to God and we can say, help me. Remember what Christ endured and bless me because of what Christ has done. Because of the hardships suffered by another, we can pray this boldly. We stand on Jesus Christ's shoulders. Great David's greater son. His hardships were redemptive for us. They bring us into God's very presence. We don't have to suffer to be with God. Please do not hear me saying, you better be willing to sacrifice or God doesn't want to know you. That is not what this text is saying. No, God has suffered himself to know you. And now that he has changed you, you may be called to suffer for that message. So don't listen to that voice in your head, dear Christian, that wants you to suffer for your mistakes. Oh, you blew it on that one. You know, I know you're a Christian, but you better suffer some more. You better be more sorry. You don't feel bad enough yet. You can't be forgiven. Don't listen to that voice. Your forgiveness is based on the hardships and sufferings of Christ. And don't listen to that voice when it tempts you in dealing with other people. They're not sorry enough. They haven't suffered enough. I don't feel satisfied at their pain yet. I will not forgive them. Because their forgiveness is based on the suffering of Christ too. Don't listen to that voice. Because Jesus Christ has suffered for his people. He was afflicted so we don't have to be. You can boldly go to the throne of grace as wretched sinners and receive his grace. Because God's presence is worth hardship. The next thing we see is that God's promise is worth believing. After they remember what great David did, they boldly remember that God made them a promise through David. Look with me if you can at verse 11 says this, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he would not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. God promised to establish David's kingly line. They rejoiced in that promise. That promise is their lifeline for hope, you could say. I want you to imagine what's going on here. These Most likely when this psalm was written, when it became part of the canon, we're talking about the exiles returning from Babylon. They've been gone for 70, 75 years. Assyria destroyed Jerusalem a generation and a half earlier. And they come around the corner and they see Jerusalem and it is in ruins. 
There is no temple. It's been raised, burnt to the ground, gone. They see nothing but a massive rebuilding project. And with that despair all around them, they sing this psalm. They rejoiced to have the promise that God would rule them through His King. There was no throne of David. It was gone. But they rejoiced. They wanted to be ruled by God through His King. Oh, dear Christians, our heart should want to be ruled by King Jesus. That should cause you joy. That should bring hope to your life. And when we express that we want to be ruled by a king, it messes our culture up in a great way. Some of the best spiritual conversations I've ever had have been, have not on purpose, they've started with a sigh. And me saying something along the lines, I don't want to be in a republic. I want my king. What? You don't want to vote? You don't want... It's a great way to talk about something different. People will engage you then. You can turn that to a deeper conversation. Because the idolatry of independence from God is everywhere in our culture. The root of the moral revolution going on in our country right now, it's not the issue of homosexuality. It's not the issue of abortion. It's not even the issue of religious freedom. That's not the issue. The issue is our culture is at a point where it is saying right now, personal, especially sexual freedom, trumps every other freedom. And so when you come along, and you are joyful and excited that Jesus Christ is on the throne, and that He rules and He reigns, and you sing weird songs like, All Hail King Jesus in a Democracy. People look at you like you've got three heads because they don't get it. And it's a great opportunity for a conversation. When you rejoice in King Jesus, people want to know why. Because the gospel is not just that Jesus loves you and has a plan for your life, although he may. It is that Jesus Christ has established the kingdom of God. His life, His death, His resurrection has earned Him the throne of David. He is the fulfillment of this promise. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He rules and He reigns. And that big, powerful gospel should give us joy. It's a promise that's worth believing. I want to zoom in and look at verse 12 with me. There's something else here. Look at me at verse 12. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. See, there's this wonderful balance here, isn't there, between God promises unequivocally, I will establish them. His sovereign purposes, His responsibility to fulfill His promises there. But there's also the responsibility of the recipients to be faithful. God's purposes cannot be stopped. He was going to bring about great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But how he used David's subsequent sons between David and Christ, how the people of Israel fared during that period, was based on the faithfulness of those kings. Oh, Christians, do you want to thrive in your Christian life? Do you want to have hope? Do you want to have joy? Do you want to be used of God? A thriving, robust faith 
is a gift from God based on how faithful we are after He has saved us by grace. After He has changed us by grace, He then gives us right in front of us and says, It is yours for the taking. Just take it. Our faithfulness never earns our salvation. But our faithfulness absolutely reflects how seriously we take that gift of salvation that's been given to us by grace. Are you thriving? Do you have a joyous, robust faith? If not, it is not God who's backed away from you. You have not been faithful. And so, God still has purposes for you. But there is such joy you're missing out on. Look with verse 12 and have hope because there is a joyous, robust life right there held out for you. Believe the gospel. Recognize that Jesus Christ has made you right and just before God and He is worthy of our worship and just let that gospel wash over you. Dive into it. Tim Keller has this great quote I put on Facebook earlier this week and many of you interacted with it. It's also uh, on your, in your bulletin there at the bottom of the sermon notes, I believe. That's what Tim Keller says. He says this. He says, Revival occurs when those who think they already know that gospel discover they do not really or fully know it. You want revival in your church, in your city, in your heart? Then those of you who think you know the gospel, know it better. Delve deeper into it. Let the gospel change you more and more, and that's how revival occurs. See, if we're not living a joyous, robust Christian life, it's because we don't know the gospel. Discover it even now. Even today, taste the grace of God through Jesus Christ. See the gospel in this passage. He has suffered to make you right, and He holds out joy. You'll just take it. You'll walk in faithfulness to Him. Oh, it's worth it because God wants to be with us, and God wants to bless us, and that's where the psalm ends. God's purpose is worth everything. Now, this is the best part of the psalm. I love this part of the psalm. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. This is amazing. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Both times that word desired is used, we could actually translate that eagerly desired. It's actually, in a negative context, the word used for coveting, as in thou shalt not. This is an intense desire. God really wants to be with His people. I want you to think about what you really want in life. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a certain financial goal. Maybe you want to make this big purchase, or, or whatever it is. What is it you really desire? It holds on to your heart, doesn't it? It's kind of always there in the back of your mind, isn't it? You rest on that desire during stress, and it lifts you up, doesn't it? Let this truth from this psalm wash over you. That's how God feels about His church, His people, you. God wants to be with you. God wants to know you, to live with you, to be part of your life. He greatly desires it. 
Do you believe that? In a world that says, perform for me and you will be accepted. In a culture that says, be attractive and useful and we will value you. In an employment system where we're always being evaluated, and so we always have to perform and never can really just rest. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, comes along and says, I want to be with you. You don't have to perform for me. I'm the one who suffered to make you mine because I want you. Do you believe that today? That's not just preacherly hyperbole. God proves his desire. You'll notice the way this psalm works, the people actually utter a prayer specifically in verses 8 and 9. Please do this. And God answers those prayers later above and beyond. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. What do they ask for? They say, Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. That's what they prayed for. That's what they asked. And notice how God answers. Look at me at verses 13 through 16. They say, Come to your place. And God says, The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. He goes above and beyond their request and says, oh, I'm going to give you what you asked for. I'm going to give you even more so. so. God answers above and beyond because God loves his people. God wants to be with his people. We can go to him in bold prayer like this and ask him, recognizing he wants to answer us. When we submit to him the desires of our heart, he answers above and beyond is what this psalm is telling us. Oh dear Christian, today, this morning, the reason you and I have a stale faith so often, the reason that we don't have a robust, joyful life that we really want is because our desires are too small. We don't ask God for crazy things like this. We don't really take our true desires to God because we don't think He can help because our God is too small. We don't really rest in the fullness of what Jesus Christ has done for us in the gospel, the freedom and the joy that awaits us because our gospel is too small. We don't really believe it can help with the deep matters of life. You see, as Lewis sums up these ideas so well, I've used this quote before, but it's so poignant. It's there in your bulletin for you again. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, God offers us infinite joy for the taking. We can't imagine what that means, and so we get joy out of this hobby, or this relationship, or this financial goal, or, or this status symbol, or whatever it is. We, we get joy out of this. And it's legitimate joy, but it's not the joy that God offers us, and we, we don't believe that's possible, so we don't turn to that. God offers us so much in the gospel, but you and I are content, aren't we? To add the gospel to our lives like a hobby, but not really let it become our identity. Not be too religious. We don't want to suffer hardship for it. And thus, even though the Bible promises joy unspeakable and full of glory, 
We have no idea what that means. Oh, but oh, if we would see. God desires to be with you. That's right here from this text. I'm going to say that again. God desires earnestly to be with you. He wants it so bad in a negative context, it's called coveting. Let that hope wash over you. And if that hope would just change us, if we could see that and believe that, we would pursue after Him and desire Him, and we would have that fountain of joy and put our mud pies in the back alley away. Oh, we would find so much joy, so much fulfillment, that no matter what it takes, we would pursue this, because God's purpose is worth everything. You see, God's purpose is to be with His people. God wants to be with His people. He is taking us to our permanent home, heaven on earth with Him. As we live in a camp meeting for the rest of our lives, as we are pilgrims in this world that we recognize is not our home, that this is not a permanent place for us, we put our hope in the world that's coming, in the story that God is writing and if we have to suffer hardships on this journey, it's okay. God's purpose is worth it. He really wants us. And so we will be with Him one day, someday. That is the destiny of all who know Jesus Christ as Lord. God will be with you. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, you can have that destiny today. The Creator God longs to be with you. We just saw that in this psalm. He has provided a way for you to be with Him through the sufferings of Jesus Christ. You do not have to suffer to be with God. You do not have to suffer for your sins. He does not call you to suffer before you can be forgiven. He says, look in faith to my Son who suffered for you and be forgiven. He has provided a way through the hardships of Jesus Christ. So if you want that, or maybe you want that again, if you want to taste revival in your heart and really let the gospel wash over you, cast off everything you've called Christianity. If you've been a member of this church for 20 years and you want a deeper, more robust faith, cast off everything you've called religion. And simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as the resurrected Lord and King of Kings and ask Him to give you joy. He will forgive you of your sins. He will fulfill you. And He will give you joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Let's pray together. My gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, Your Gospel is so good that even now as we read the words of this psalm, as we hear these words, Lord, we, we don't believe them. Our heart doubts. Lord, we ask that You would, by Your grace, help us to believe. Would you give us faith in Jesus Christ? Those of us who already know you through Jesus, those who don't, would you give us the gift of faith as you promised? Would you give us joy? Would you help us to believe that you desire us and would that change us, Lord? Do your work, we ask in Jesus' name.